0: Good morning, CPC. Good morning. My name is Jefferson Bennett. Uh, My wife, Andrea, and I have uh, had the lovely privilege of um, staying in this city and uh, being hosted by many of uh, the members and pastors here at CPC this weekend. And so it's just been a real delight now to be here with you uh, and to be in this place together, especially since this is sort of a new thing, right? Getting together in person and learning all the ways in which we socialize uh, in person again, which is great. Um, a little brief history. Uh, we hail from uh, the, uh, the very hot and humid state of Georgia. And so, um, well, we, didn't, we weren't born there. Uh, I was born in the beautiful hills of West Virginia. As a boy, my wife was born in the beautiful state of New Hampshire. And so, uh, maybe that makes us northerners. Technically, I don't know, Um, but we certainly felt at home here and are thankful to be able to open God's Word together uh, with you. So let's do that um, now. We've had the reading from Psalm 46, and um, uh, if you have your bulletin, I want to have you open that so you can follow along with us. And as um, as we're turning there, let's go ahead and pray together uh, that the Lord would be with us. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Please speak to us from your word this morning and be glorified in our hearing, in our believing, and our obeying, fueled by the faith and love of Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen. Do you remember having a nightmare as a kid? Uh, something that you was terrifying, a dream in the night that when you woke up you could remember, you could recall all the details. Um, and that memory, that, 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 that terror from the dream sort of hung with you the rest of the day, uh, perhaps the rest of the week. For me, I know I, I still have two uh, nightmares in particular from when I was a young boy that I can still recount in every detail uh, to. And, and it's, it's stayed with me this entire Uh, time, Um, but when you grow up and you become an adult, as some of you have done, others not yet, when you grow up and become an adult, uh, you know, where where do you go when you have a nightmare? And as a kid, you go to mom and dad's bed, you go to their room, knock, 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 you know, turn on the lights, but as an adult, where do you go? And where do you go when the nightmare is not at night anymore, but in the world? all around you, maybe even in your own home. I think Psalm 46 gives us a picture of where we go in the midst of nightmares in what I'm calling the threefold shelter of God, that God is a shelter from fear, that God is a shelter from pride, and that God is a shelter for the world. A shelter from fear, a shelter from pride, and a shelter for the world. A shelter from fear. This psalm starts and ends with this strength, this security, this fortress of God's shelter, right? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. He's not just a refuge, but it says he is a strong refuge. He is a a sturdy refuge, a shelter. And how strong is he? Well, the psalmist says right from the beginning... That he is stronger than the sea. Now, I heard uh, Pastor Jerry mention last week on the live stream a little bit about how terrifying the sea was to ancient Israel. And it's absolutely right. Put simply, the sea to ancient Israel was a nightmare. The sea is what wiped out the earth during Noah's generation, it's what swallowed up Egypt during Moses' generation. Uh, it's why Jonah being thrown into the sea was uh, essentially a death sentence. And it's why the metaphor that Jesus uses in all three Synoptic gospels, um, when he says that if someone causes a child to sin, it'd be better if they had a millstone tied around their neck and they were thrown, what? Out into the depths of the sea. It was the worst kind of death possible because the sea was a nightmare. And not just was it a nightmare in itself, but it actually was inhabited by monsters, real monsters, right? Genesis 1, Job 41 talk about great sea creatures, great sea serpents and monsters that inhabited the sea, about which these uh, legends, myths formed so people would tell stories about creatures they'd seen the sea swallowing up you know whole ships and just sort of all the mystery of the sea was was terrifying. And not only did it hold monsters, but also it exposed somebody to all of the winds and the waves and the natural elements uh, over which one had no control. Right. So when somebody set out to sea in the ancient Near East, they literally had zero way of telling if they were going to make it out alive or not. It was that terrifying and uncertain. And here in verses 2 and 3, we see that the sea is not just raging in and of itself, right? But what is it swallowing up? It's swallowing up the mountains. Now, the mountains, surely, we can imagine, right, are a sturdy and safe place. Uh, something from which you could you could hide away to, you could shelter in. Um, uh, certainly, much more um, uh, safe than the valleys would be. Right, you're up high, you're you're protected, and they're always there. And yet, even here, the sea is swallowing that up. What an unthinkable event that the mountains would be even be falling into the sea. If the mountains are being overcome by the sea, then literally the psalmist is saying that there's no place on earth that is safe. It's the equivalent of the end of the world as the psalmist knows it. In the 18th century, uh, the Wesleys, John and Charles, were Anglican missionaries um, to uh, the um, Native Americans, actually in the state of Georgia, after their time serving there, they were returning uh, by ship across the Atlantic Ocean to England when their ship was hit by this colossal storm. I mean, they're throwing precious cargo over. I mean, they're trying to do anything everything they can just to save the ship, to save their lives. And literally, it got so bad that everyone on the ship began to fear for their death and their doom. Everyone except for this one small group of people, that is. See, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the storm, there was this one group of people who were heard singing on the ship. And they were singing praise to God, completely ready to go and be home with Him. These Moravian Christians had no fear of death. And when John and Charles Wesley looked, And heard and saw the confidence that they had in God, the hope they had in Christ. They later wrote in their journals about that event saying, We left to go to the Native Americans that they might be converted, only to return to England realizing we ourselves had not yet been converted. That we actually did not have the hope and the confidence that we thought we once did. And it sent them, obviously, into a revival of seeking the Lord there and eventually starting the Methodist uh, movement. You know, at the heart of all the fears surrounding this pandemic and the COVID-19 crisis, um, I think, uh, to me, is, is that we're just simply afraid to die. Um, and we're afraid to lose people that we love. And um, and I think that's you know that's just normal. I mean, that's a part of that's a part of the unnatural you know uh, nature of of death. We weren't meant to die. We were meant to be with the Lord forever. But just because it's normal, I don't think for the Christian that that means that it is necessary for us. One of the things Jesus came to do was to replace our fears with faith. To replace our fears with faith. You know, people do crazy things when they're afraid, right? But with faith, that's this daily relationship with the Lord, this hand-in-hand walking with God. The crazy kind of calms down a little bit, and we're able to be of help in the midst of the madness instead of just adding to it. In one scene from the Gospels, it seems pretty directly aligned with Psalm 46. Jesus is asleep on the boat. You'll remember this, right, kids, if you've seen the pictures or the felt board. Do you guys do felt boards anymore here? No? Okay, I missed those. Um, Jesus is asleep on the boat, and the disciples um, are there with him, and a massive storm hits this boat, and the disciples are freaking out. They're like, we are going to die. So they wake up Jesus and they're like, you know, we're, we're perishing, we're dying, come. We don't know what to do. And Jesus wakes up and he asks them what? He says, why do you have no faith? And then he utters a single word and the storm's gone. Psalm 46 reminds us that the whole world can and will one day pass away. The earth is frail. Our fa- flesh will fail. Our days will come to an end. And yet in Christ, the Christian never needs fear death. I mean, really, truly, never needs fear death. In Christ, God is able to quiet whatever storms are in your life. But not only for your personal peace, your personal storms, but through Christ's redemptive work, by his spirit in the church, We're told that one day the whole world's tears will be wiped away because all of their fears, even death, will be eliminated. Revelation 21.1 says when Christ returns to make things right, quote, the sea was no more, no more storms, no more monsters, no more nightmares. Christ is the shelter from our worst nightmares and Christ is our shelter from fear. Secondly, we see that Christ is not only a shelter from fear, but he's a shelter from pride. Now, that may have some of you asking, where are you seeing pride in this passage, right? Um, Well, look at verses 4 and 6 with me here. There is a river. Okay, we've just had this sea swallowing the earth. But there's this river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So here we see this metaphor of the sea was actually describing this political and civil unrest coming on the doorstep of God's people. The nations are raging, the kingdoms are tottering, okay? Strong foundations, strong nations have already fallen. Israel is next. And yet in the midst of this raging, in the midst of this sea of chaos, there's this simple, this small, humble, hopeful picture of a city with a tiny little stream coming into the city. Israel still had everything it needed. All the safety, security, the shelter it needed because it had the Lord. And this is important, I think, because Jerusalem and this little Shilohah stream that ran into it was not much to boast about. Okay? If... uh, You know, if the Euphrates or the Nile River are, you know, a Lamborghini or, um, you know, a Porsche, Israel's little stream was like my 1991 Honda Civic that, uh, you know, has rust all over it and doesn't start half the time. It was nothing to boast about. In fact, in Isaiah 8, God's people reject God's provision in Jerusalem They reject this stream, and they long for other nations' rivers, other nations' cities for protection. John Calvin, the French theologian, says that God's people defraud God of his honor by the unworthy reflection that when he, that's God, made the choice of the city of Jerusalem, he had not made the necessary provision in the respect of strength and fortifications for its defense and preservation, meaning, God, you didn't give us a very good city, it didn't give us a very, a very, you know, uh, proud and and strong and 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 fortified place to dwell. The city was humble compared to other cities. The stream was humble compared to the great rivers. It forced the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem to choose to either trust God or to deny Him and go and run and trusting their enemies and this is how the text reads the emphasis is not on the sufficiency of the city you notice but it's on the emphasis on the presence of God with his people in other words they can't boast in themselves right? they can't say look at my city they can't say look at our wall look at our defenses but they are left to only look to God verse 5 you see God is in the midst of her God will help But you cannot, you must not think that you're going to do it on your own. Because you can't. Pride has no value in God's economy and the Christian faith will always seem strange and stupid but it is the only real shelter that exists anywhere. So scholars debate about when this psalm was written you know, after what event, you know, was was the Psalm being written for Israel to remember? Um, But one of the probable hypotheses is that this is following the Assyrian assault under King Sennacherib's reign. You remember uh, that Sennacherib is is going around and, and wiping out nation after nation. He's building this massive army Um, The year is probably around 700 BC, which means that 22 years earlier, the northern kingdom of God's people had already been wiped away by the Assyrians, already been conquered. And now now it's the southern kingdom, Judah's turn. And Sennacherib and the army are literally on the doorstep of the city, ready to destroy it, ready to annihilate it, when we read this from 2 Kings 19. Verse 10, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. This is the um, King Sennacherib writing. Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will be given into, will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. In other words, don't let Yahweh lie to you. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations my fathers destroyed? Gozen, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden, who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamat, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sefervaim, the king of Hanna, the king of Eva? Hezekiah received this letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, spread the letter out before the Lord. And Hezekiah, he prayed before the Lord. When the world as Hezekiah knew it was about to end, he humbled himself and he goes to the only person in the world who can help him. He goes to God. And you'll remember the story that a miracle happened that night. I mean, a terrifying miracle happened that night. A few verses later in chapter 19, we read this. That very night, the angel of the Lord, one angel, went out and struck down 185,000 soldiers in Sennacherib's army. And when the people arose in the morning, everybody was dead. Threat, gone in a night. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home. (laughs) I would go home. Lived at Nineveh. And there, when he was worshiping in the house of his god Nisroch, Adremelech and Shahrazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword. Now, a small side note here, uh, if you visited the British Museum in London, there is an Assyrian wall there from the reign of King Sennacherib, which actually records this event. Now, these walls were, you know, sort of like political brag boards, right? So they don't always include every detail, just sort of the nice stuff, right? Just the stuff that you're proud about. So it leaves off a little detail here on the board, namely doesn't mention the slaughtering of 185,000 people in a single night. It literally says that as Sennacherib was about to conquer Jerusalem, he just went home. He just went home. That's it. And it says when he got home that his sons murdered him. That's it. That's all you get. (laughs) Why did he go home? Why did his sons kill him? Well, the Bible says... Because he had lost an army in a single night, right? I mean, years and years of building this army, of conquering and adding to it, now gone in a single night. The embarrassment, the unthinkable incompetence of losing an army like that to a tiny little city like Jerusalem was impossible to explain. But for Judah, for God's people, that humble city was their shelter. And how was it a shelter for them? Because on its own, it would have certainly fallen. But it wasn't on its own. No, God was in her midst, it says. God was her shelter. And not only from her enemies, but first from her own pride. Hezekiah falling down in humility. You know, that wasn't common for the kings of God's people to humble themselves before the Lord. Hezekiah falls down before the Lord in humility and calls for his help. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Meaning, Lord of hosts, all of heaven's armies, right, can wipe out an entire army in a single night. That God defends us forever. Meaning, God of Jacob, the one who humbled Jacob by wrestling him out of his pride and arrogance and then giving him what he wanted all along to be blessed and to inherit a kingdom. That God is our shelter. The one who will wrestle us out of our pride (laughs) from trusting anything other than him to deliver us from our nightmares. What does James say? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? To the humble. That's it. Sennacherib, proud, proud. Out to dishonor the living God, God opposes him. Hezekiah humble, trusting God, so God exalts him. Doesn't it remind you of Jesus in Philippians, right, when Paul says, Christ, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, You know, to most people that y'all are going to meet, right, young folks in the room, to most of your friends, most of your peers, the humility of Jesus is seen as weak. It's seen as worthless. His willingness to suffer for others is seen as puny. It's seen as pointless. But it is the very thing which makes him safe and strong. Because Christ's humility on the cross reveals where his true hope lies, where his true shelter is, not in the appearance of strength, not the pride of ego, but in the assurance of God's protection and provision. And I think this is important for us to remember, you know, because historically, the church has really lost its way to fear and to pride many times, believing the mighty will inherit the earth, forgetting Christ said the meek shall inherit the earth. We've forgotten it wasn't Christ who came and crushed those around him, but who he himself was crushed. Isaiah says, crushed for our sins. Yours, mine. And he calls us to join him in serving the the world in love and humility. So God is mighty, but we are called to admit our weakness. God is right. We're called to admit our wrongness. God is good. We're called to say, we're not apart from you. And in that, exalt Christ, acknowledging he's our only hope of life and love in this world or the world to come. Christ is a shelter from fear. Christ is a shelter from pride. And lastly, Christ is a shelter for the world. In verse 18, we finally get the first command, the first uh, imperative, what what to do, and it says, come behold, come and look, look at what, at desolations, what are desolations, well, the idiom in Hebrew is something, terriful, t- something terrifying to look at, something, something horrific to look at, so it says, come and look at something that you don't want to look at, Come see something that is really hard to see. And I think that that's true for today. A lot of times we we see desolations, we see things happening in our nation, in our world, and we kind of want to just retreat. We kind of want to just bury our heads in the sand, you know, or stick our heads up in the clouds and not look Not see what's happening, but the invitation is, no, come and see what God's doing. Come and look at what he's doing. Come and look at the hard parts of his plan in the world. Because that's how he puts an end to violence. That's how he ceases war. That's how he breaks the bow and burns the chariot is by meeting those things with his might and his mercy. Look, look and see what he's doing. Look at his word, the Bible. Look at, look at the world, back and forth, interpreting. Lord, what, what's, what are you doing here? And what's my part? In verse nine, he says, these crazy desolations are happening so that all the wars can end. The murderous nations can be put to a stop. To humble, proud, arrogant leaders who think they can do whatever they want with or without God. And then, verse 10, finally, God speaks those famous words. He says, Be still and know that I am God. Now, I don't know if you have this here, but in the South, um, be still and know the is sort of this, um, has been turned into this sort of uh, serene, relaxing, like, you put it on coffee mugs everywhere, you know, and uh, I don't know, it's like you're supposed to like get your cat and curl up next to a window um, and uh, and just be still. Um, but in actuality, <laughs> that the Hebrew reads a little bit less like hey, just relax, and a lot more like repent, because be still literally means stop. Stop. Now I want to ask you this, when was was the last time that you asked somebody to stop, and you didn't expect them to turn around and look at you? Stop means stop and recognize me. And that's what to know here means, it means it's less about knowledge and it's much more about acknowledgement. Stop and recognize me. Stop and acknowledge God. I am going to be exalted among the eight nations. I'm going to be exalted in the earth. And that's repentance, right? Is to stop and to acknowledge God. To stop and to turn to him. He is God. In the Reformation times, Calvin, um, it's interesting commentating on this psalm, he, he really believed this rebuke was for the nations and the enemies of the church, as he put it, only. But as I'm reading and studying this text in the Hebrew, I can't find any indication uh, that this command goes out, this rebuke goes out only to the pagan or to the unbelieving world. I think it suggests that it's going out to Israel as well. to stop, and acknowledge God. Because Hezekiah was a rarity amongst God's kings. And we know, throughout history, God's people were regularly being rebuked by the prophets for their sins. Their leaders trying to become like their neighboring nations, right? Instead of acknowledging God's word and his ways. This was Israel's problem again and again and again. They knew all the stories about God. They knew all the sacrifices required, but they refused to acknowledge him in their hearts, with their hands. Isaiah 29, this is God's rebuke of them. He says, the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. That puny little city is finally going to get wiped out because you won't acknowledge me. It never was about the city. It was about me. Jesus himself quotes this exact passage of Isaiah in Matthew 15, right, to rebuke his contemporary religious scholars. And then later in Matthew, Jesus says about those same scholars, he says, hey, listen to what they say. Remember, they honor me with their lips. Listen to what they say but don't you dare do what they do because their hearts are far from me. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had enough, just enough knowledge to frankly murder the Messiah, but not enough to acknowledge him as the Messiah. They weren't willing to listen, they weren't willing to learn, they weren't willing to change. So what about you this morning? How calibrated is your knowledge of God to your acknowledgement of God in your daily life? You know, every one of us has ways in which we fail to acknowledge God in our heart and with our hands. Are you willing to stop this morning and to acknowledge Him? To listen, to learn, to change, He's not just a shelter for you and I. He's a shelter for the world, and he'll be exalted among what? The nations. And yet, at the same time, I think this rebuke is not just for the world, but is meant for us, the church as well. So, this time last year, uh, the Lord brought a man into my life um, who was uh, really a very scary figure. to me personally. Um, this was a, a, a very uh, strong, muscular, athletic black man um, who uh, had tattoos, gang gang symbols and tattoos all over his face and neck. Um, he showed up in our neighborhood in kind of back alleys and near the train tracks down the street, always kind of passing stuff off to people. It was kind of shady. Um, But I began to pray for him, and um, one day he noticed me and said something, and I responded, and that led to me inviting him over to my house uh, for him to borrow some things, which led to him then, then showing up that night at around midnight, waking up my wife and I and asking for a ride to go pick up some friends which led to me giving him a ride at midnight, going and picking up some friends, which led to, you know, just so on and so forth, this relationship for about a month. And I remember that um, his name was Hilton, and, and, and one time, uh, you know, Hilton, he had a job washing dishes at the local restaurant, but he was living out of a, an abandoned truck bed downtown because he, he didn't want to um, have to live with his stepdad and his mom. Uh, in their house. And I remember one night I said, hey man, let's go get some KFC before we wash your clothes in the laundromat. I was taking him to get his clothes washed. And when I said KFC, I mean, the dude's face just like lit up, right? I mean, he's just so excited. And uh, he turned to me and he said, we're in the car and he said, man, he said, why are you being so good to me? And I simply said, Because Jesus said to. And I love Jesus more than anything on the earth. And that very brief friendship with Hilton led me to praying with his mom on her front porch after he had been arrested for sleeping in an abandoned truck. And it led me to being his primary contact uh, while he was in jail. And it led me to marvel just to marvel at how Christ could humble himself to come here, not just to save sinners, but even to serve them, to love them, to care for them. You know, I think if I had believed, as Calvin did, that this rebuke in Psalm 46 was for the world only, I think I may have had a different approach to Hilton maybe a posture of superiority instead of servitude, maybe a desire to save him, but not necessarily to serve him. But I think it was because of this, this theme throughout the scriptures and in Jesus' message and ministry that it's not just about knowing the facts, but also about practicing them, acknowledging the Lord in our daily lives Head, heart, hands, that I saw Hilton really as sort of a a gift and kind of a test from the Lord. If this man were Jesus Christ Himself, would I be treating him any better? Am I acknowledging Christ's love and commands on Sunday mornings only or Mondays at midnight when there's a knock at my door? Among my people only, or among all peoples of the neighborhood that I'm in? Is Christ a shelter only for those who look and act like me, or a shelter for the world? You know, God is going to be exalted among the nations. He's going to be exalted in all the earth. And Jesus picks up that same trajectory when he closes out Matthew's gospel right before he ascends. You know it well because, you know, uh, it's become sort of a a stamp of the evangelical movement, right? The Great Commission. He says, go into the world, make disciples of all nations. Still baffles me how hard that was, you know, in the book of Acts, you know, when they're like, can the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit? (laughs) It's like he said all nations, every ethnos, not just the righteous, not just the have or have nots, not the extricated, the white, black, brown, yellow, or red, but salvation for all, mercy available to the whole world and CPC, the whole of New Haven. Looking, come behold, hard events, hard people, hard situations around New Haven is a key, I think, to seeing God exalted in all of New Haven. The first step to stopping and acknowledging God, stopping and acknowledging God absolutely is going to involve our mouths to proclaim, but it's also going to involve our hands, our feet moving into action. That Christ himself is not a shelter from the hard things of the world, but a shelter for those things just as he entered into our pain, sin, and misery, so he calls us, come and do the same in this broken and battered world. You know, this is why I chose the New Testament reading from Ephesians 6. I think it's fascinating that Paul says, you know, be strong in the strength of God's might, you know, put on the armor of Christ, literally put on Jesus. And Paul says, He doesn't say, so that I can get the heck out of prison, right? Or so that I can be spared from all this junk I've been having to put up with ever since I gave my life over to him. He says, no, so that what? So that I may be able to be an ambassador for Christ in this world. That I may be able to be available as a shelter for the people who are actually trying to kill me. He's a shelter from fear. He's a shelter from pride. And... That's a benefit for ourselves and others. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation are to find shelter in Christ. So in closing, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what uh, consumes your nightmares, your fears, your worries. I don't know what pride in you is actually endangering you right now. But I do know from personal experience and from the testimony of his word and from the fruit of his church that Christ Jesus is the only shelter that is strong and stable forever. From fear, from pride, and a shelter for the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would make it so in our lives that we would shelter from fear in you, shelter from pride in you, and become something which the world has no explanation for, a shelter for those who even would persecute or harm us, that we would become like Christ that he, his spirit, would inhabit your church. And you would be exalted among the nations, exalted in all the earth, as we stop and acknowledge you now and forever. Amen.